Welcome to today's edition of the Career 100 Podcast. Your host, Felicia Gopal, founder of collegefundingresource.com, will be interviewing professionals each week that are currently working in one of the top 100 careers for 2011. This series is designed to introduce students to different career options that are in demand and share the path each practitioner has taken to arrive in their current position. We want to expose you to the varied and distinguished careers of our guests and to perhaps inspire you to consider following in their footsteps, or better yet, blaze your own trail. So sit back and relax as Felicia interviews professionals about how they came to be in the top 100 careers. Hello, it's Felicia Gopal here from the Career 100 podcast. I want to thank everyone for joining us and welcome you to today's podcast. Today we're going to continue exploring one of the careers that's listed as one of the top 100 careers. I often talk to students about the importance of having some idea of their college major prior to applying to college. I believe that doing so will save families thousands of dollars a year as students don't have to go from perhaps one subject to another. So I believe doing so will save families thousands of dollars a year as students can take classes that move them towards graduation. If you're considering becoming an economist as a career, you'll receive some valuable information today from today's guest. An economist is a professional in the social science discipline, and today's guest has done something very unusual, at least in my mind. He's basically married economics with engineering and aerospace field, and I think that what he's doing is he's helping develop and apply theories and concepts of economics to a career or a field that I wouldn't normally have attributed to. So today's guest is Dr. Jesse Johnson. Dr. Johnson was raised in a poor single-family home in Pottstown, Pennsylvania. While in high school, he had faculty that helped him to develop a love for math and science. Prior to his senior year, he mentioned that he went to Lafayette College, where he participated in the minority introduction to engineering course that they had. He received his undergraduate degree from the University of Pennsylvania. He received his master's from Stanford because his employer would pay for it and because the chairman of his undergraduate program had gone there. And then he received his Ph.D. from John Hopkins. He's been working at LMI as a management consultant and research consultant since 1995. Jesse, it is my pleasure to welcome you to today's call. Thank you. Great. So what I want to do first, Jesse, is just ask you, how do you marry economics with aerospace engineering? That is not a marriage that I think would, most students would normally create. So tell me about your career and how you managed to get those two very different disciplines together in your career. Well, I think they've always been there. It's just only recently been what we'll call formally recognized. Economics is the study of the allocation of resources, and so that, in essence, is applicable to every field they are because everybody faces limited resources, and you are forced in ways to use your resources wisely and efficiently. And so only recently have we begun to formalize the type of academic instruction under that same rubric which makes this possible. Even though people were doing it 100 years ago, 50 years ago, it just wasn't called by this formal name. So for me personally, I have a story that I went to work for a company called Rockwell, which is the makers of the space shuttle. And then when I left, my mother was very upset with me. 
And so one time when I was at home, she pulled out this picture that I drew when I was in kindergarten of me in a spaceship floating around the earth. And she knew that that was my destiny, that that was what I had secretly wanted all of my life was to do that. So for me, I am part of that, what we'll call the uh, Star Trek generation of people who grew up and were influenced by science fiction and things like Star Trek. As I sought my career goals, I loved the aspect or the idea of aerospace, but I was very acutely aware of the type of layoffs that typically face the aerospace industry. As a result, I chose to do aerospace in my own way, in part to prevent some of that type of economic turmoil. If you remember in the 70s, like 50% of the aerospace field was laid off when the Apollo program shut down. So I sought to get into that field because I liked it, but I wasn't willing to go all in in terms of an aerospace engineering degree in fear of not having anything else to turn back to should the next downturn occur. So for me, I did a special type of engineering called systems engineering, which was more about solving ill-defined type of problems. What are the set of the broad range of skills that you need to solve various types of engineering problems crossing multiple boundaries? And so that was what I chose to major in. And then I chose to apply that in general to the area first of aerospace engineering. In actual practice, that meant I spent about 13 years doing airline, airspace type of analysis. And then more recently, with the new company that I'm at, I do essentially the same thing, but for outer space in terms of satellites, things like that. So you were able to take that. Was it partly because of the emphasis of your mother bringing that picture back to the forefront that had you really start to look for? Or it sounds like you were already working in the field, but then you went out and looked more deliberately for a position that married the two interests that you had. Oh, yeah. This was when I had left Rockwell and when I had left graduate school and taken a faculty position. And so my mother was concerned that I wasn't following my heart, so to speak. Mothers are always concerned about those sorts of things. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So then you went to Rockwell. And then after you went to Rockwell, you went on to John Hopkins? Or did you go to Stanford first? Yeah, I graduated from undergrad. And then I went to work for Rockwell in Los Angeles, who was the makers of the space shuttle. I worked there for two years full-time as a navigation engineer on the space shuttle. So the main function of my job was to do the algorithmic checkout of the navigation system prior to each space shuttle mission. So we had a uh, simulator, both computer model and physical simulator, where we would go through the navigation portion, making sure that the shuttle would fly the exact route that it was programmed to, and then adjust for various variations and make sure that it would still fly. And then we would have essentially a series of programmed accidents and to make sure that the shuttle would be able to get back to the Earth okay. So I did that for two years. Then I went to graduate school at Stanford for uh, four years. After Stanford, I left and I joined the faculty at Morgan State for two years, mainly because I was still young in life and I could afford not to make a lot of money. 
And I wanted the experience of going to school at a predominantly black university since up to that point in my life, I had never been to one. I did that for two years, and then I went to Johns Hopkins and finished my Ph.D., and then from there, I've worked at one consulting firm focused mainly on airlines and airspace, and then currently, from where I'm at now, does uh, satellites and outer space. Okay. So you are one of those kids that dreamed of doing something in aerospace and then went out and made it happen. So congratulations on that because, you know, one of the reasons why I do this series is so that our students will dream big dreams and realize that there's a possibility for dreams that they had in their youth to become to fruition if they go to the right schools, get the right job, you know, do all the things that their mothers will tell them that they need to do. So thank you for sharing that. And you just so, have to have the internal strength and fortitude to go out and do it and just say, this is what I'm going to do, and I'm going to do what's necessary to get me there. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's a lot of internal drive that takes that. I know that you know my husband, and he tells a very similar story of wanting to always work at NASA as a young child and then doing everything that he needed to so that at one point in his career he worked at NASA. So I definitely understand the kind of drive and fortitude that it takes to not only set a goal in your youth but to follow it through and make it happen. So let's talk about economics. You are my expert on economics. Where else do economists work? Now, remember there's multiple forms of economics. There's basically okay. two types of economics, micro and macro. Micro is the theory of decisions, the theory of allocation of resources. That's one general area of economics. Macro is about the way governments relate to each other monetarily, trade balances, funding of currency, those type of things. Those are two fundamentally different type of training. So I did the micro part in my economics education. I didn't do any macro. So okay. if you have an economics degree as an undergraduate, which I don't have, I have an engineering degree with some economics at the undergraduate level, you will do both macro and micro if you go to graduate school in economics, you will usually specialize in one or the other. Or in the case of my program, I went to a engineering school which focused on systems analysis skills, which included a microeconomic basis. Okay. So students, when they're doing their undergraduate work, will do both the micro and the macro. And then if they go on to do a master's degree or any additional work, then they're going to generally make a choice between one or the other. Right. And micro is the application of it, of economics to systems. And then macro is more on the government level. Is that government correct? and institution and nation level. Okay. Okay, good. So, so those are, those are two a, different fields which will result in two different job paths. For okay. instance, you're much more likely to say if you work for a consulting firm to be a micro. But if you work for, say, the U.S. government in the Department of Treasury, dealing with those type of issues, you'll much more likely be a macro. Then depending upon where you're at, other institutions like the World Bank, Import Expert Bank, will have some combination of both doing distinct functions. 
Okay, okay. So it sounds like a field where there could be two very, very different career paths. Oh, definitely, yeah. Consultant route, and so in the consultant route, you are going more for the application of economics to various different situations as opposed to macro view of economics where they're looking at it much more from an institutional level, from the government standpoint and city standpoint, I'd imagine, and nation standpoint. Correct. Perfect. So in, so in, in micro, we're helping individuals and companies make efficient allocation of resources, essentially how and what to spend their money on. At the government level, you're looking at a a fundamentally different set of problems which require a different skill set. All right. So you know the micro level. So is it a field where you are required to get an additional education beyond your undergraduate in order to progress in the field? It depends upon what your end goal is. So, for instance, I'd say that a lot of people who major in economics leave, and when they graduate, they go to consulting firms. And so there, it's just a function of whether or not that consulting firm requires you to have an advanced degree in order to advance up the corporate chain. In general, if you go to graduate school in economics, the best schools will only offer PhDs. And so if you see somebody with a master's degree from a school like Stanford, that means that they didn't make the Ph.D. program. Okay. All right. So are there any particular skills and traits that you would expect somebody to have to be an effective economist? Yes. I'd say that once you get past your junior-level courses, especially in the area of micro, a lot of economics is no different from math. It's just math with words. And so okay. <laughs> so what you have is, I call it advanced calculus with word stories to go around the map. All right. Okay. <laughs> and so if you go to... They ought to do that. I mean, I know a lot of people who were really intimidated by their economics class, but if they basically had somebody who described it as, okay, it's, uh, it's basically a math problem with words, I think that, you know, they could have gotten over some of the hang-ups that they had about their economics courses. Yeah, I mean, because to be honest, if you were to walk into a graduate-level micro course and a graduate-level calculus course and you looked at the boards, they would look almost exactly the same. Okay. You know, so in that sense, at the micro level, there is a significant quantitative component to do at the graduate levels. At the undergraduate level, that tends to be watered down unless you're going to do an econ at MIT where, you know, you'll get full-board calculus and analytics to go with it. Got it. So you talked about economics, especially as you progress in your education, is really about math with words. So are there any particular traits and skills that you would say that somebody who is pursuing an economic degree should have? I assume that they should be good with numbers, but are there any other traits and skills that they should also have? Yeah, at the micro level, math is a prerequisite that if you don't like math, then at least you won't make it in micro. Simple as that. Okay. Aside from that, like any other graduate program, I mean, you will be challenged and it usually helps that you have a study group. You know, you have three or four people that you get together at night with and you go over homework together and you teach each other, you learn from each other. 
I mean, that's the uh, collaborative aspect, at least the graduate school experience that I've had, and I don't think it's changed that much. Okay. So it's not in addition to being good with math, but it also helps if you have the type of spirit or the type of training where you are willing to help other people and be helped by other people as you progress and move through the course materials. Yeah, definitely. So what are the challenges of being an aerospace economist? Well, right now, the challenge is that most of aerospace is government funding, and government is cutting back on their money. I mean, we have some financial problems at the top level, and they are trickling down all throughout the economy. So for now, we don't have a shuttle program. Right. And so we have a lot of people who were involved with the shuttle program who are now unemployed and looking for other type of employment. And we have a whole generation which is not being learned or interested in the space industry because there is no shuttle program. So when I was 20 years old, the space shuttle was starting, and that was the hottest job in America to have, and that's why I went to work at Rockwell. That is no longer the case, and that causes the nation to suffer, not just in the aerospace engineering, but widely across what we call STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math. So we have lost that to some extent, or at least if we haven't lost it, we are falling behind with the possibility of losing it unless we have some new drastic solutions fairly soon. So there's a whole generation of people who don't grow up on Star Trek, who don't see the space shuttle go up every six months, and as a result have no ties to that program and all the negatives that come with that in terms of the type of economic spinoffs and gains that the country has had as a result of the government investment in space technology. Would you also say that because we're no longer investing in the space program, we are also not training enough science and engineering and math students to even go into career fields that might be tangentially tied to the space program? Yeah, we have a simmering education problem in the USA, especially in engineering schools. If you go to graduate school, you'll find that most of the students in graduate school are foreign students. And that's a problem because the people in the U.S. have chosen to, say, do law degrees or MBA degrees or something else rather than the engineering field. As a result, we have abandoned some of those technologies. And I'll be honest with you. I know that at some point I was told that if you were an American citizen and you applied to graduate school, you would get in just because you were an American citizen that people were actively looking for U.S. students to fill slots, and they weren't available, but there were more than enough students from foreign countries to fill those slots. So we have a what I'll call an allocation issue with regard to how we are doing our education. I honestly believe that the country could do with a, a couple 10,000 less lawyers and a couple 10,000 more engineers, mathematicians, and scientists. But what is actually has gone on in some sense is that the glamour that was associated with the space industry when I was a little boy has now been replaced by the computer science and video game industry. So there are more funner options that young kids see involving technology than space. I can see that. I can see that. 
But I know that when I was doing some research for a degree that I just recently obtained, one of the things that it said is we are on a trajectory that will have us have like millions and millions of fewer graduates than we need for the jobs that are currently created and the ones that we're going to be creating in the future. And it sounds like this is especially acute in the field of engineering as well as the sciences in general. Are you also noticing that that is something that is also true in the field of economics? I'm not sure if it's as pronounced in economics, but if you look at, say, the average age of the engineering staff in this country, it's well over 50. Right. And in some places, you know, I've been on projects where I have visited factories making special materials or special products, and I've seen staffs where the average staff is over 60 and 70. Wow. And so what happens is that when those people leave and retire, they take their information and what's in their brain with them because there hasn't been enough financial opportunity for them to hire younger people and train them. So we face the prospect of losing specific technologies or at least having to learn them all over again when certain people at certain companies leave or retire. Now, economics, I think, is much more of a broader area in the sense that it's probably one of the more popular undergraduate majors. It becomes a springboard to doing a lot of everything else. So there are a number of people who have undergraduate liberal arts degrees in economics but do something else, anything else, because of their training and experience and the type of job opportunities that were available to them at graduation. So based on your knowledge, you don't know that economics is also suffering from a lack of people going into it, but to the extent that economics is tied to technology, you're noticing that there is a dearth of training and investment into building that out for the nation. And if it doesn't have an impact now, it certainly will in the future as the people who have led the field for all these years start to retire. Right. I mean, as a percentage, there are probably more American-born economists in grad school than, say, American-born engineering students in graduate school. But still, I don't believe the number is all that high or representative of the U.S. population as a whole that we are still, you know, staffing our graduate programs with foreign students as opposed to U.S. students. Well, that's certainly a problem, and it's certainly something that I hope that our listeners will listen to and know that if you have an interest in engineering, this might, while it's an interview with an economist, it's an economist who has an engineering background telling you, Perhaps if it's something that you're interested in, this may be a career choice that you might want to consider because the industry seems to be growing older and older each day. Mm -hmm. So let me just change my course and ask you, why do you think that being an economist is one of the top 100 careers for the next decade? I think that, number one, because of the versatility of the skill set that you get as a part of the undergraduate training. So, in general, you need to have some mathematical skills to at least do the micro portion of undergraduate economics, which says that I put you a little bit ahead of everything else. And essentially, 
the type of world we live in, even at a personal level, let alone a business or a corporate level, is all about efficiently making decisions, which is at the heart of the economics. So what you have is a set of skills which train you how to make those decisions, starting off with how to frame the problems, what is the exact problem that you are talking about, and then what are the skills and analysis steps to go through to solve that problem. And that is applicable to people in their personal life, although it seems sometimes a lot of people don't use it. But <laughs> and also, huh? I said it seems like a lot of people don't use it. <laughs> well, I try and be nice, but it's also at the heart of the type of decisions that corporations are making too. Okay, I can see that. So what I heard you say is that really the training that you go through to your undergraduate work, it's really about learning a set of skills that not only can you use in business decisions, but also something that you can use in your personal life. And I think that that does make being an economist a very unusual career choice for students to consider because it really has broad application. Right. So do you have any final thoughts that you'd like to share with us, please? I just like to say, think about what makes you happy. And if what makes you happy is being a dancer at the Dance Theater of Harlem, then that's fine. You should go and attempt that. But also recognize that we all have dreams and sometimes they don't work out and you need to have a second goal, something that can you know, afford you a decent lifestyle, that can afford you to go on vacation and have a wife and kids and not end up on welfare and all that type of stuff. So think about what you should major in college and what are the opportunities that will arise from that. And just enjoy yourself in college, but don't enjoy yourself too much that you flunk out. But find that right balance between you know getting A's and B's and developing yourself as a person and enjoying that, regardless of what your major is. Absolutely. So, Jesse, would you like to share your contact information if somebody was interested in talking to you a little bit further about some of the things that you shared today? Yeah. Jesse underscore Johnson at StanfordAlumni.org. That's J-E-S-S-E underscore J-O-H-N-S-O-N at sign S-T-A-N-F-O-R-D. A-L-U-M-N-I dot O-R-G. Great. To learn more about the college planning process, I invite you to visit our website, www.collegefundingresource. I also encourage my listeners to keep coming back to listen to more of our podcasts. At College Funding Resource, you'll be able to listen to guests like Jeffrey who have valuable information to share. If you received some value from this podcast, please visit our iTunes channel and vote and review it. Jesse, I want to thank you for joining me today and sharing with us a little bit about becoming an economist and especially an aerospace economist. Okay. Thank you for your time, and I'm glad to contribute to somebody else's well-being. All right. I want to thank also my listeners for joining us today, and I hope that you will join me again in the next installment of the Career 100 podcast. Thank you for listening to today's edition of the Career 100 podcast. We hope you'll join us again for our next podcast, where we'll continue to interview experts in the top 100 careers for 2011, giving you the insider's view of their chosen profession. 
If you'd like more information about planning and saving for college and to instantly download your free copy of College Funding Resources Report, Five Strategies That Parents Need to Start Using Today to Cut Their College Costs Tomorrow, visit www.collegefundingresource.com. That's www.collegefundingresource.com. This is Kathy Davis for the Career 100 Podcast.